Welcome to the Get in the Fight podcast. My name is Nate Whitson, and I'm the founder of Get in the Fight Ministries and our exclusive online fight club for Christian men. Everything we do here is dedicated to helping Christian men become the men that God meant for them to be. So if you're looking for helpful content and conversations that can help you to grow and become the man that God made you to be, then you're in the right place. But before we get started, please do me a huge favor and be sure to subscribe, click the like button, and then leave us a five-star review. Doing that helps us to reach more men who are looking for content just like this. Also, if you'd like to learn more about our mission and how to get involved or how to join the Fight Club, then head on over to getinthefight.club. That's getinthefight.club and learn more today. But without further ado, it's time to get in the fight. So let's go. Hey, what's up, fellas? This is Nate Whitson with the Get in the Fight podcast. I'm glad that you're here. If you're a Christian man that is looking to just be a better man, that you want to live a bigger life, a better life, if you want to become the man that God meant for you to be, then this is the place where we push for that. This is the place where we talk about that. This is the place where getting the fight is designed to serve and help you with. So if that's you, if that's a life that you're pursuing and you know that you are better when you're around other men who are pursuing that same goal and have that same passion, then welcome. We we do this primarily for you. We're trying really hard in this uh, setting of life, in this time of life, to not settle, and that's hard. Everything in our country in particular is designed to help you to be very passive and weak and uh, settle for average, and we're pushing against all that. So we want to live whatever short time that we have to the fullest, and we do that by trying to encourage one another in that journey. And of course, it's very spotty. We're hit and miss kind of guys, and you probably are too, but we're trying to do that together, and we know that together we're better than when we're on our own. So glad you're here. We're going through and actually finishing up uh, a series of podcasts from a book that I love called The Wisdom of the Bullfrog by Admiral William McRaven. He's also authored a book called Make Your Bed and another called Sea Stories. And I'm a sucker for leadership stuff, and I love being around men who get after it. Probably because I'm not as much of that guy as I wish I was, but man, there's something deep inside of me that resonates with these strong men that live lives boldly and strongly. And, and uh, so although I maybe don't always exemplify that in my life, I want to be that way. I want to be strong like that. And, and who better to learn from and grow from than an admiral who was a uh, long-standing Navy SEAL and has just been through so much. So we're working our way through his book and then really just trying to apply that to the life of a Christian man. If you haven't listened to previous podcasts in this series and you want to hear more of those stories of leadership, you would want to start at episode number 23, 24, 25, and then today final is 26, and you'll catch up on all of those. The book is really written in a way that you don't have to read it and you know, connect chapter one to chapter two. It doesn't work like that. These are just 18 different ideas of leadership that can help you to grow. And we're translating that again to what it looks like to grow and to lead as a Christian man. So again, episodes 23 through 26. And my suggestion as we go through this is really, you know, grab a pen. As you're listening to this, if you can, you might want to write some stuff down. It's just that good. And and I'll say this, you know, probably at the end, I'll try to remind you, but 
I'm really skimming through and just trying to give you like a quick thought from what he's written, but there's some incredible stories. So I highly encourage you to buy the book. You can go to getinthefight.club and click on the Amazon store link, and then you can find books that we recommend and books that we've read that we think are worth learning and growing from. And you can find the wisdom of the bullfrog there at getinthefight.club in the Amazon store. So we're going to jump right in. This is the, again, the last six chapters of the book. So we've been through chapters one through 12, and we're going to start at uh, chapter 13 today that he titles Troop the Line. And so going to the book, this is what Admiral McRaven has to say about Trooping the Line. Trooping the line is steeped in army tradition. Historically, generals have ordered their soldiers to muster on the parade field so that officers can inspect the troops, ask questions about their training, and ensure that the general's orders are being relayed to the youngest private in the formation. Washington, Grant, Pershing, Eisenhower, Colin Powell, and the Army's first four-star female general, Anne Dunwoody, all the great leaders, have at some point trooped the line. Each service has something similar. In the Navy, every morning the sailors and Marines would gather on the fantail of the flight deck of the ship that they were on so that they could receive their daily word. In the Air Force, the airmen muster on the flight line and orders are disseminated. In all cases, there is a deep understanding that as an officer, you need to get out among the troops. You need to confirm that the senior officer's orders are being followed, but you also need to ensure that the troops see their leader as often as possible. In every command tour I had, trooping the line, those daily walks around the building, the base, or the camp always yielded great insights into how well the organization was doing and how well I was doing at leading them. So I love this idea of troop the line. This is a a great leadership principle that I really feel like many of us men maybe gloss over or feel like we're doing a good job at until things start to unravel. I think what Troop the Line really means is that you're paying attention and that you're with your people. It, like there's no way that you can really know the, the atmosphere of your organization or the people that you're leading or even your family if you're just disengaged, if you're just so busy and disconnected that you're around them, but you're not really with them. You know, think about like a dad that's disconnected and, you know, he's out paying the bills but he's golfing after work or he's going to the gym or he's, he's just not around, right? Like he would say, look, I'm, I'm there. I see the kids every day, but are you with the kids? It's kind of like if you're a leader of an organization or you're a coach and it's like, yeah, they see me every day. I see them, but do you really know what they're thinking? Do you really know? Are you connected to how they're feeling about things? You know, this is where when you don't troop the line, you can get into big trouble down the road. It's one of those things where it's not enough for them to know that you're the leader. That's easy enough to see. But for them to know that you care, that's a completely different thing. So like, think about in your own family. Are there people in your family that might feel like you're around, but you don't really see them? You don't really know their opinion? Maybe they have translated it that you don't really care about them or about the things that they care about. I think that's really possible for a lot of us Christian men that we can be in the front, but maybe they don't know, you know, how we really feel or where we're going. Is there anybody in your office or on your team? Think of it that way. Is there anybody 
that might possibly feel like you're in charge, but you don't really know what's going on with them or how they're doing? Do you really know how your people feel? And then do you give them opportunities to express that to you? Or is it just kind of like, you know, it's your, it's your ship, it's your home, you're in charge and they'll do what you say, but you don't have to listen to anything from them. If that's the case, then you need to break that. If that's the case, then you need to figure out how to get in front of them so that they don't just think you're in charge, but they think that you care. Because really, honestly, at the end of the day, just having a leadership title doesn't mean that you're a great leader. Going back to the book, Admiral McRaven says this, leaders can often convince themselves that they're too important to be dealing with the mundane issues of the organization. They, the true leaders, are meant to be solving the intractable problems, the problems that will advance the organization to the next level, the problems that only the smartest men or women in the company can solve. True, but never forget that there are also problems that need solving at the lowest possible level. Problems that, if not addressed, result in inefficiency, ineffectiveness, and in low morale. Problems that the lower echelons in the organization struggle to solve, but that the leader can solve with one short directive. And sometimes the only way to ferret out these problems is to get out of your office and talk to the men and women who do the hard work on your behalf. I know in my office, our boss, our leader, is living in a different state. So there are no questions who's in charge. But there definitely has been issues where those of us that are in the home office, the local office, sometimes aren't really sure, you know, exactly what's going on. We always know that he cares. He's a great guy, great boss. I just say it to say that it's easy to just be so busy doing the things that you do that you have to just work harder than normal to make sure that you're not just seen, but that you are hearing from your people. And it's just, it's an important thing that we, that we consider, you know, and it's true as he talks about there, there are times that I think we think maybe as dads that doing the dishes or taking out the trash or sweeping the floor or some of these mundane tasks where we think I've been working all day, like somebody else should be doing this. This isn't the job that I should be doing. And there might be some truth to that, but the reality is there's nothing below you. You know, it's your job to steward your home. It's your job to lead. And as Jesus leads us and shows us from his example, the best leaders are the ones who are down there at the same level as the lowest level. And those are the true leaders. That's the way that you lead as a Christian man. So never think of yourself more highly than you ought to. You need to be involved with your people. You need to troop the line. You need to be seen. And they they need to know that that you hear them, that you see them, and that you care. Good insights and thoughts from Admiral McRaven here. Moving on to chapter 14, the title of this is Expect What You Inspect. Expect What You Inspect. Going to the book, he says, In 1778, the Continental Army under George Washington was floundering. Volunteers with no military training, were called into action and were roundly defeated by the regulars of the British Army. With no discipline, no organizational structure, and frighteningly low morale, these farmers, tradesmen, and merchants struggled to conduct even the simplest of military maneuvers. 
By the winter of that year, Washington had moved his forces to Valley Forge, just outside Philadelphia. He desperately needed someone to help him build a professional army. Benjamin Franklin, who was in Europe at the time, found exactly the right man for the job. Mounted on a large white horse with full military regalia on his uniform and two immense pistols holstered at his side, General Frederick Wilhelm von Steuben rode into Valley Forge in February of 1778. One soldier recalled von Steuben's arrival as though it was the, quote, fabled god of war himself. Von Steuben had been a soldier since the age of 17, fighting in the Seven Years' War, where he was wounded on several occasions. He had gone on to serve as a quartermaster, an adjutant, and the aide-de-camp to Frederick the Great. He was a soldier's soldier. Soon after his arrival, Washington made von Steuben the Continental Army's inspector general. Von Steuben was appalled by what he saw of the volunteer army. The camp at Valley Forge was poorly laid out. Tents and huts were scattered across the field. The soldiers relieved themselves wherever they wanted. Sanitation was non-existent, and both weapons and equipment were in unacceptable working order. In addition, owing to a lack of good record-keeping, corruption and graft were rampant as soldiers received and then sold their muskets and other equipment. Within days, von Steuben had initiated inspections of the troops, their tents, their rifles, and their combat equipment. Administrative records were also scrutinized to eliminate war profiteering. Soon thereafter, daily drills began, and during the winter of 1778, von Steuben wrote the regulations for the order and discipline of the troops of the United States, a document that has been the foundation for the American military since it was first published. Baron von Steuben's influence on the Continental Army is credited with much of their success, and for the past 245 years, the idea of good order and discipline and the value of inspections has been a mainstay of every great military organization, and no leader of any good standing has ever questioned the need for inspections. This leadership principle, I think, flows certainly out of trooping the line. You know, like when you are actively involved, that you're out front, but you're also seen and heard, you are going to put yourself in a position at that point where you can then inspect the condition of what's really happening. I know in my house, for example, this, this makes me think of our chore chart that my wife puts together. So every morning after her quiet time, my wife will print out and then write out for each of our girls what their chores are for the day. And one of the issues that we have is that even though we're in charge and we're saying, this is what we want you to do, we've shown them how to do it, we tell them what is expected of them, the reality that we've come to is that if she or doesn't inspect what we've asked them to do, many times we will show up later and say, I thought you were supposed to do the dishes. Why are these dishes like this? Or why are they done so poorly? Or why isn't the bathroom cleaned up or your bedroom or whatever the thing was? This principle, this leadership principle of inspecting what you expect to get done is really important. It, the truth is that if we don't inspect our kids' work, a lot of times it's just very unsatisfactory. They're not doing it with excellence. And I know this, just being in charge isn't enough. Just giving an order isn't enough. And in, on the flip side of it, none of us like to be inspected. I mean, think about it. If somebody's doing this, you're going to say like, man, why are you constantly looking over my shoulder? Why are you getting all up in my business or however you take it defensively. None of us likes to be inspected, but we do know 
that when there's accountability to the work that we do, we do a better job. That's just the reality of it. And so, of course, we can take this too far. You can do too much inspecting and then you're just micromanaging and people are only doing it not because they choose to, but because they have to. And that doesn't work very well. But you also can get to the side where my wife and I were and inspect it too little as well. And now we're not leading well in that situation either. We have to do a better job at inspecting what we are asking to get done. So again, just thinking in terms of leadership, where are you doing that too much? And maybe where are you doing it too little? Going back to the book, Admiral McRaven says that every military in the world understands the significance of an inspection. We inspect uniforms, weapons, vehicles, tanks, airplanes, ships, and everything that is of value to the organization. But too often in the corporate world, we give it less attention than we should. While every CEO appreciates the internal and external audits to verify the financial status, that same rigor is not always applied to other core elements of the firm. What is often lost is the positive effect that inspections can have on morale. Inspections are not just about ensuring compliance. Inspections force a level of discipline into the corporate system, and when discipline is applied, the rank and file know that they're in an organization that cares about quality, that cares about results, that cares about hard work. No one loves to be inspected, but every professional appreciates knowing that someone above them cares about the details, because it's in the details that businesses succeed or fail. As a leader, you must find the right balance between too much oversight and too little scrutiny. Left unattended, most organizations will get sloppy and undisciplined. It's human nature. Your employees must understand that their work will be judged, reviewed, inspected, and then graded. It's the only way to ensure compliance with the high standards you set. While the troops will always complain about too much oversight and too many inspections, they will also appreciate knowing what's expected of them. Man, I think this is like so right on. As a leader, you've got to find the balance you know, between too much oversight, too little scrutiny. And it just makes me think of, again, maybe not in the CEO structure of a corporation, but just even as a leader in my home, am I trooping the line? Am I visible? Am I just like the, the leader by title or by yelling or by strength? Do my kids and my wife know that I care about them? Do they see me doing uh, the mundane tasks? Am I holding them to standards that are helping them? Am I being too harsh and too critical, which to be honest with you, that's where I tend to go. I get way out of balance, probably on the side of scrutiny and just being like, gosh, it's not getting done the way that I want it to get done. And so I've got to find this balance in it too. And, and if, if that resonates with you, I think there's two things that Admiral McRaven says that I think are just so right on. Number one is identify what, what matters most. Identify the core elements, whether you're a coach or a business leader, a boss, or just leading in your home, whatever that looks like, what are the core things that need to be inspected? And then develop a plan of action for how you're going to do that. Again, in our chore chart illustration, it's up to us as adults to not just give the instructions and orders, but also to inspect it and hold them to a high standard. And so Sarah and I, in our case, have to figure out Okay, like how are we going to actually just go make sure that their work was done and done in a way that we expect of them? Not only will that help them to know what's expected, because pause here for a second. If you've ever been in a situation at work or in life where you really had no idea what the expectations were until the boss or the leader showed up and he's just screaming at you and you're like, man, I had no idea. Make sure that it's clear 
what the expectations are, inspect it regularly, help them figure out how to do it well, but don't surprise people with, you know, scrutinizing it when it really hasn't been clear from the very beginning. So just some good things to think about, I think, as a leader to inspect the things that you do and and figure out what matters most. And if you get too overly critical, you might just be talking into, you know, into the air at that point. So focus on what matters and start there. Hey, guys, I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. And if you are, please do us a huge favor and be sure to subscribe, click the like button, and then leave us a five-star review. It only takes a few seconds to do this, but it makes a huge difference for us, and it helps us to reach more men who are looking for content just like this. Thanks so much for listening and helping us out. Now back to the show. Moving on to chapter 15. This chapter is titled Communicate, Communicate, Communicate. In the Navy SEALs, in this chapter, he kind of is going through the idea that there's three phases. You've probably seen this or heard of this, that there's three phases to their BUDS training, which is their initiation into and acceptance into being a Navy SEAL. And so they're going to really test you, of course, to see if you have what very few of us have to be able to go through this. And you really just have to, you know, you have to want it. You Being a part of this community, you have to want it more than anything else in life, basically, to make it. But there's three phases to it. Each one is brutal. But he is now going to tell a story where he's in the third phase. So he's just made it through Hell Week. He's made it through some water training that's just terrible. And now he's in this scenario where they're off in this island that's like 80 miles or 50 miles away from California. And they're really kind of isolated and they do some uh, pretty amazing training here out in the middle of nowhere. And so he's in charge of 14 men and they are being told, like, here's the mission. Senior leaders are somewhere on the island. Your objective is to lead this platoon of men. At some point, you're going to be ambushed. There's going to be, you know, fake grenade simulators, and there's going to be ammunition that's blank ammunition, but you're going to get ambushed at some point along the line. And the objective is to move your team safely and effectively and as quickly as possible away from the, the kill zone, and we'll see how well you can do. So Admiral McRaven is in this third phase. He is a, a leader. He's in charge of 14 men. And we pick up the story here now, and we see what happens here to him. Ambush right, ambush right, someone screamed. From the high brush to my right, the sound of blank fire erupted in a deafening roar. The ambush was on. Simultaneously, all the men in the platoon dropped to the ground and returned fire in the tall grass. Grenade, grenade, another voice shouted out. To my immediate left, just to the side of the point man, a grenade, a grenade simulator exploded, first one, then another, booming in my ears with stunning effect. On the ground around me, my platoon continued to fire, changing magazines and waiting for me to give the order to move. We couldn't counterattack through the brush because it was too thick. We couldn't move to the right. The instructors had sealed off our exit. It appeared that our only choice was to move left and try to get out of the kill zone. In my mind, I knew that was the textbook answer but I had a better idea. Without hesitation, I jacked another magazine into my M16, jumped up from my prone position, and ran around the left edge of the heavy brush, nodding to the point man as I bolted past him. I would flank the instructors, circle around the bushes, come up from behind them, and counter-ambush them by myself. This was going to be awesome. 
Like a man possessed, I charged past the row of bushes, jumped over a few small boulders, and found myself unopposed on the high ground behind the instructors. Flipping my selector switch to full auto, I pulled the trigger and raked the bodies of the seven men laying behind the high brush. I moved forward, continuing to fire as I methodically shot each man with blank ammunition. We had won. What the hell are you doing, Mr. Mack? Instructor Fackety yelled, jumping up from the ground. Killing bad guys, was my quick and proud retort. Doc Jennings, one of the few black frogmen of the Vietnam era, stood up from where he was lying and gave me a look of complete disdain. Sir, you're a damn fool, he said, or words to that effect. You left your platoon lying in the kill zone. Did they know what you were doing? Somehow, this wasn't going as I had imagined. Get back with your platoon, Mr. Mack, Jennings said sternly. I thought the worst of my getting chewed out was over. Surely the platoon would appreciate my quick thinking. They would understand that what I was trying to do was help them win. I had defeated the instructors. That must count for something, right? Sir, what the heck are you thinking, Varner said, echoing the words of Fackety. We had no idea where you went, LeBlanc piped in. I quickly tried to explain. Look, guys, I saw an opportunity to flank the enemy and save the platoon. I reacted. Well, sir, that's just fine. But we had no clue what you were doing or where you were going. Marshal Lubin had swung around to join in the conversation. Yeah, man, I thought you were running away from the firefight. No, 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 I said. Come on, guys, I was trying to save the platoon. Sir, with all due respect, Varner said, a little less caustic now, your job was to get us out of the kill zone, to communicate your intent so that we could all move together and survive. I just nodded. I knew they were right. That's fine. Then you went off and did your own thing, and we had no clue what you were doing or where you were going. I don't know if you've ever been a part of an organization or maybe followed a boss or a leader who made you feel that way, but it's a terrible feeling. There have been people that I have worked with or for that just kind of did their own thing. And I'm telling you, that is a, it's a bad position to be in where you're just thinking, I'm doing my job here, but I have no idea how this connects, or I have no idea if this guy even knows what the heck is going on. When you have a leader who is just doing his own thing and everybody else is kind of left in the wake of whatever he is doing or choosing to do or the direction he's going and you're not sure how it all fits or connects, that is a terrible feeling. And so Admiral McRaven is here saying like, look, if you are a leader, this is really critical. This is like something you've heard a thousand times, but if you're a leader, you simply cannot communicate too much. It, it makes me think that one of my favorite leaders is a guy that always is saying that vision leaks. He's saying like, if you give a vision to your team, if you're a leader and you're saying, here's where we're going, uh, here's what we're doing and here's why it matters. You can't just say it once. You, you, he's like, you have to say this so many times that by the time you feel like you've said it to exhaustion and you are just like, there's no way they want to hear this again. He said, it's probably at that point that it's just finally starting to kick in vision leaks, communication leaks. It's just really hard for people to grab what you as a leader knows. And so you've got to find ways to communicate in a way that you are saying it over and over and over again and knowing that people need to know not just what you've said, but why it matters. You have to be able to ensure that every single person on your team knows what you're doing and where you're going. As a dad, think about this. 
you know, you're giving orders all day, but do your kids know why this matters? Do they know where it's going or how it connects to their faith? Or are you just kind of the boss and you're just screaming, but they really just feel like, you know, I'm just having to follow this guy, but I have no idea why. That can make a huge difference in the impact, you know, that it has in your kids and in your home. If you're a boss, you know, do the secretaries or people on your team that are at the lower levels of your organization, do they know and feel like they're a part of a team? Do they know what you're doing and why what they're doing matters to the overall vision or, or organization? Have you communicated with them? Do they see you? Again, there's trooping the line involved here. Or are you just in, in charge and uh, you assume that the lowest levels know what's going on? You know, when you're a husband and you're communicating with your wife, do you talk about things that matter? Are you communicating with her at a level where you're really building cohesiveness and teamwork? Or are you, again, just kind of doing your own thing? She's doing her own thing. And this is what we see a lot, right? I mean, this is like the state of our families and marriages. It's like we're talking all day, but we're not communicating at all. So Admiral McRaven, I think, takes this idea of leadership and just says, look, you've got to establish communication and get feedback as well, too. So it can't just be one way, he says. Like, you've got to communicate to your team, and you've got to be effective at it, and you've got to make sure that everybody knows what's going on, but you also have to have communication come back to you. Do you have a plan for people to be able to communicate important things to you that you need to hear? Then you need to confirm with them that what is actually most important is understood and that everybody understands it. And I think, again, this is where we skip over this, and we just say, look, I've told them a thousand times what matters. But if every single person in the team doesn't understand that, that falls back to you. You're the leader. It's up to you to make sure that they actually understand what matters most. And then I love his suggestion here. He says, never make a big move without a plan for ensuring that everyone is crystal clear first. You know, you've got to make decisions all day long. And there's certainly many of those decisions that you make as a leader that doesn't have to involve everybody's input. There's no, there's no time or there's no practical way of doing that. However, if you are making a big move, if there's a big decision on the horizon, there's nothing worse than being on the other side of that where you're just going like, holy smokes, we just made this huge move. I didn't even know this was coming. I didn't even know he had this in mind or whatever. So if you want to crush morale in your home or in your team or in places of, that, of leadership that you're in charge of, then don't communicate to them and you'll crush them. But if you want to have an amazing team where everybody's moving in the same direction, everybody's working together, everybody's communicating back and forth, you're receiving it and you're also bringing it down and everybody knows, you're going to have an awesome team. And I think that's his point. So just don't make big moves and then later on go, oh, by the way, we're doing this, right? As a leader, establish communication and communicate, communicate, communicate. Moving on to chapter 16, Admiral McRaven titled this, When in Doubt, Overload. And this is what he means. Going to the book, he says, Since World War II, Navy frogmen had been clearing beaches across the Pacific and in preparation for the landing at Normandy. Interestingly enough, the basics of clearing the beach haven't changed much since then. A team of frogmen would board a high-speed craft. The boat would approach the beach and drop off the frogmen parallel to the shoreline in water about 21 feet deep. Using a plastic slate, a grease pencil, and a lead line, the frogmen would swim the distance into the beach, diving down along the way to locate the obstacles. 
Once each man made his way to the beach and back, the high-speed boat would swing by and pick them up. Back on the mothership, the leader would chart the location of the obstacles and plan the correct amount of explosives necessary to destroy them. These calculations were precise. For each scully, a haversack of 20 pounds of C4 was necessary. Once all the explosives were assembled, the frogmen would reboard the high-speed craft, head back to the beach, load the obstacles with explosives, and detonate the C4, clearing the way for the Marines. But 40 years of clearing beaches from Okinawa to Normandy to Incheon to Vietnam had taught the frogmen one very important lesson. Whenever you were in doubt about the amount of explosives to use, always overload. Always put more energy, more force, more power into the solution than you think is necessary. It was the only way to guarantee success in the face of uncertainty and doubt. <laughs> so these frogmen are going and they're saying there's an obstacle in the way and there's some doubt about how we're going to make sure that we're safe or that we are successful. What do we do about the obstacle in the way? And their objective and their goal is we will destroy this thing with more energy, more force than maybe we think is necessary. I think the principle that I take from this is that there are many times when you're leading that you deal with doubt and obstacles, right? This isn't surprising. But what we end up doing and how we respond to it maybe isn't with overloading, but with drawing back. So a lot of times I know my first reactions when I'm de dealing with heavy doubt or discouragement or obstacles that get in the way, like I didn't expect this to happen. I didn't expect to get hurt. I didn't expect to have to deal with this at this time. There's an obstacle. There's something that is blocking the way forward. And a lot of times the initial response is, you know, you sulk or you complain, you make excuses for why it's not going to work. You back away and just get scared and, and just don't do what strong men do. You blame other people for why it's failing or falling apart or whatever, right? Whatever thing that we do there. But the idea is that when you have to deal with doubt and discouragement and obstacles, and you will, what we really need is a tougher mindset. What we really need is to do this. Overload your commitment. He talks about in this book just different times where things didn't go his way and you know what he had to do? Get up earlier work even longer sometimes, work harder, study more, right? Overload it to make sure that there's no chance, at least in his own capabilities, of failing or not being successful at that mission. And guess what? That's really hard to do. It, it takes a tough mentality. It takes a strong man to be able to look at an obstacle or to look at doubt or to take on discouragement that way. Because everything inside of you is fighting against responding that way. And yet that's the way forward. So, you know, as Christians in particular, what we're saying is we should work hard as unto the Lord. And when we're in doubt, we should pray and overload our life with God's thoughts. We should overload our life with better effort. And that combination of getting our minds right with Christ and in, in appealing to him for his power and strength, and then also taking the efforts that we need to and doubling them up and, and adding more to it, that's the right combination, I think, for a Christian man. You're not trying to do this in your power. You're using the strength that God has given you as he's put his life inside of us. So the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and gives us power that we don't possess on our own. But we know that through him, we can do all things. 
if Christ is at the center, if he is the one, if it's his power that we're working in. But we need to overload in that category, especially when the obstacles appear. And they're going to appear, right? There's just no way that this life is going to move straight line forward, no obstacles, no discouragement, no doubts, no fears. That's not the life that we live. And so when in doubt, overload the effort, overload the prayer. Moving on to chapter 17, I love this one too. He titled this, Can You Stand Before the Long Green Table? Going to the book, he says this, Difficult decisions with serious ramifications require careful thought. Throughout my career, I often found myself on the horns of a dilemma, torn between what I knew to be right and what others expected or what was expedient. At these times, I always came back to the question, Can you stand before the long green table? Can you justify to reasonable men and women sitting in judgment of your decisions that the actions you are taking are moral, legal, and ethical and conform to the goals and objectives of the organization? If not, you should reconsider your actions. But if you can honestly say that your actions are justified, that reasonable people would see them as such, then stand by your convictions and make the hard choices. You know, being a man and being a leader means that sooner or later you're going to have to make a decision that carries some serious ramifications, that your decision to do this or not do this thing, to go there or not go there, to involve yourself in this or to just step aside, it's going to carry some serious weight with it. There's just no way around it. If you're leading, you're going to be faced with hard decisions. And what he says that I think is so powerful here is he talks about this thing called the long green table. Well, this was basically where other military leaders would gather around and you would come to present your actions and decisions to a board of leaders who could determine whether or not your actions and decisions were wise or right. And you had to be ready to convince these men who have been through things like this before that your decisions were the best decisions to make or not. And so there's, there certainly would be a lot of pressure to go into this. And he's saying, you know, you better think through this. And, and for him, it was like this filter of decision-making that allowed him to think through this and say, all right, I know I'm going to have to face this long green table. I'm going to have to uh, stand before these judges in essence and be able to tell them that this is a reasonable and right way to go. And the way that he would think through that was three different things that are maybe worth you considering as well. He would say before he made a big decision that had big consequences attached to it, he would ask the question, is it ethical? Does it follow the rules? Think about that question for you. Is, is the decision that you're making in line with what the rules are for whatever that decision is? Is it ethical? Is it legal? Which is just, is it following the law? And then he would say, you know, is it moral? Does it follow what you know is the right thing that you should do? Going back to the book, Admiral McRaven says this, while most folks might think that knowing what is morally right or wrong can sometimes be ambiguous, it is not. In talking to both subordinates and superiors who made a bad decision and had to live with the consequences, invariably they would say this, in the back of my mind, I knew it wasn't right, but then they would find a way to justify it. I have found in my years of leading that when confronted with a challenging decision, I almost always know the right answer. 
It's just that the right answer is hard to accept and the decisions are hard to make because we don't live in a world of isolation. Making a hard decision will sometimes lose you friends. People will be mad at you. Short-term gains may be lost. You may even be court-martialed. But if you understand that sooner or later you will have to give an account for your actions, then by deciding to do what is moral, legal, and ethical, you will most likely end up on the right side of history. You know, we like to think that we don't always know the right decision to make. But Ad Admiral McRaven says that that's baloney. What he says is that we almost always know what the right decision to make is. We just don't always have the courage <laughs> to do it. We don't always have the courage to do the things that we actually do know that we should do. You know, so think about this. Like we, we pray through this in our fight club every single day. First Corinthians 16, 13 and 14 says that we should act like men. This is a part of what it says here. We act like men, be strong, do everything in love. Think about how that plays out. To act like a man in most Bible translation is to act with courage. So when we talk about acting like a man, we're really talking about courage. And this is really the heart of what Admiral McRaven's talking about in this leadership principle. When you have a tough decision to make, it takes courage because again, you probably aren't going to always be very popular. When you're leading other people, you're going to have varying opinions on things. You're going to have strong opinions on things. You're going to have disagreement on things. And there's times that people that you love won't understand and they might even be offended and leave you. That is tough. That is tough. And it takes courage. It takes men of great strength and faith who can say, look, this may not be the best answer in the world, but it's reasonable and it's based on right ideas. And so what he is saying is this, this leadership takeaway is always do the hard right thing over the easy wrong thing every time. And know that when you have to give an account and explain to other people, this is why I decided this, this is what I was thinking, that it was moral, it was ethical, it was legal. I am doing the hard right thing, the best that I know how, at least you can stand with your chin up. And I think that's a huge principle for us to take away. The last chapter of this book, moving on to chapter 18, is called Always Have a Swim Buddy. And this is such a great way to end this conversation today. Going to the book, he says this, The greatest compliment one frogman can bestow on another is to call him a swim buddy. It's a simple term, but it conveys everything about how we live, how we fight, and sometimes how we die. Underwater at night, when it's at the darkest, it is your swim buddy who swim bes swims beside you always ready to provide you air if you run out, untangle your lines if you're caught under a ship, or fend off unwanted visitors. When parachuting, it's your swim buddy who checks your parachute before you jump, who ensures you pull at the right altitude, and it's your swim buddy who lands beside you in enemy territory. When patrolling in combat, it's your swim buddy who walks on your flank, covering your six. It's your swim buddy who lays down a base of fire so you can maneuver against the enemy. And sometimes it's your swim buddy who lays down their life for yours. You learn it early in SEAL training that you never did anything at any time without a swim buddy, someone who could bail you out of a tough situation. Your swim buddy was more than a diving partner. Your swim buddy was your protection, your conscience, your friend, and frequently your salvation. In podcast episode number 16, I know I talked about this critical nature of men living within community with other men. And that really is really 
what Admiral McRaven is saying here too. You can go far on your own, but it's not safe. You know, you can do this. And a lot of men, you know, try to play the Lone Ranger position of just trying to think that they can swim on their own, go through life on their own, go through difficult challenges on their own. And they'll say, you know, I've got a wife and I've got my family and that's enough. And that's partly true. But I really genuinely believe that every man needs a swim buddy. They need somebody or some bodies in their life that really know them, that walk with them, that journey with them through the great things and can celebrate, but also are there for them when things get tough. Somebody that can be in their corner for them, can fight with them, can defend them from trouble. Somebody who's going to be faithful through all things, but also somebody who confronts them when they need to be confronted and helps hold them accountable. How amazing to have a swim buddy, a man in your life who helps you become the very best version of you that you can be. I think it's absolutely critical that men have a community of men like that because you know, you'll know you never go as far as you could have if you're just swimming on your own. So I just wanted you to think about this as we kind of wrap up this conversation is, you know, who are you doing life with like that? Who is the swim buddy or the swim buddies in your life that you call on when things go t- you know, get tough, when you're celebrating life with? Who do you have in your corner? You know, who have you let in all the way into the darkest parts of your thought life and just who have you let in all the way? Who do you call on when life gets tough? Who do you call on when there's great things happening? I mean, that's so, so critical. Men in general tend to be disconnected. It's one of the great problems, I guess, in our society today is that we know things are falling apart and yet what happens instead of getting closer with another community or tribe of people we actually separate and for some reason we try to go it alone and i think what admiral mcraven is saying here too is that in the navy culture in the seal culture they know it's life or death and i guess what i'm saying is i think he's right finishing up here in the book he says this swim buddies are a necessity in life Call them wingmen, co-pilots, first mates, shotgun riders, Skipper and Gilligan, Thelma and Louise, Barney and Fred, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, partners, call them whatever you want. But without a good swim buddy, you will be destined to make bad decisions. You will be confronted with the difficulties of life all alone. You will sometimes wallow in self-pity and nothing you do will be as fulfilling. Every frogman knows that in the turbulent waters of life, you always need a good swim buddy. I think he's right. And I think that's a great way for us to end this wisdom of the bullfrog book that we understand uh, that being a good leader is tough. Being a man of great courage and strength and discipline and joy is tough. And uh, we need each other. And again, so if you're a man that's listening to this and just going like, gosh, I don't have that, then I just want to encourage you. Check out Get in the Fight. Check out this ministry. Check out other ones, maybe this isn't for you. Cool, no problem. But you need to be with other men. You, if you're a Christian man trying to go through this on your own, you're crazy. You're going to get hurt. You're going to go only so far. You know, you need, I need, we need each other. We need other men in our lives. And so just challenge you go to getinthefight.club, see if this is right for you, see if belonging to a community like this can't help you to go further than you could on your own. We think that it can. So just kind of like a quick recap, we talked about here today, 
trooping the line, making sure that you're seen, making sure that people know that you care, making sure that you're hearing what's going on. We talked about inspecting things, making sure that you're not just saying what you want, but then inspecting the quality of it. Are you doing that in areas of uh, leadership that you're in charge of? How are you doing at communicating? Admiral McRaven said that we need to communicate, communicate, communicate. You just can't do it too much. There's no such thing. So make sure that you're communicating with your team. He talked about when you are in doubt to overload. And so when you've got obstacles in your way, when there's doubt and fear and discouragement, don't back away. Bring even more to it. Overload that with prayer and with a renewed commitment to fight. Then he said, can you stand before the long green table? Thinking through those tough decisions that you're going to have to make as a man and just thinking through, will I be able to justify the decision-making process when people are scrutinizing it? Can I stand before them and still feel good about those? Is it legal? Is it uh, moral? Is it right? Am I doing the hard right things or not? And then feeling good about that. And then last thing here, he talked about having a swim buddy, which we just said, don't try to do this on your own. This is something that you want to go further. You want to be the man that God meant for you to be. You need other men. And so that's our encouragement for you today. Thank you for fighting. If you're listening to this and you made it this far in this podcast, you're fighting. You're fighting to be a man that God meant for you to be. And we love to see that. We love to hear that. We want to support you and encourage you in that. And so, you know, just remember that the world is a better place when we're fighting like that. So have a great day and go get in the fight. Hey guys, thanks so much for being here today and listening to the show. Please be sure to head over to the website at getinthefight.club. And before you go, if you haven't already, please subscribe, click the like button, and leave us a positive five-star review. It makes a huge difference whenever you do. Have a great day. Go get in the fight.